Welcome to the Uncanny Adventures podcast. Thank you for listening to Uncanny Adventures. If you'd like to support this podcast, please go to patreon.com slash uncanny underscore adventures. The sun is high in the sky, a merciless ball of heat. You feel scorched by the time you reach the bus halt in front of Osborne's drugstore. It's a relief to put down your heavy cases and take your hat off for a moment. Fan your face. It's been a long summer here in your hometown. And yet, curiously, empty one. You look across the street at the grubby butcher shop, the grocer's with its faded awning, and the shabby tobacconist. Distrustful faces glare at you as they pass, eyeing your clothes and your luggage. It was your parents' choice to live here, not yours. You were happy down south as a child, among Providence's white-walled houses and leafy churchyards. Perhaps this new job in Arkham will supply the change you need. Yet, everybody you know in the world lives here. You know nobody in Arkham. Not a soul. You ask yourself one last time if you think you're doing the right thing. The answer is here. None of your supposed friends have come to see you off. You're alone. Whatever challenges lie in Arkham, there will be a new life and a brave one. A small gray motor coach approaches and rattles to a stop. Put your hat back on and pick up your cases. Two young men with sullen expressions alight from the coach. One looks you up and down before heading away. The driver also steps down, glancing at you before crossing the road to visit the tobacconist. When he returns, he's rolling a cigarette between his yellowed fingers. He gives it a final twist and examines you as he reaches for his matchbox. He's a thin man in his 50s, dressed in a stained shirt with the bus company emblem. Yet his eyes are sharp in their dark sockets. Where to? Show him your ticket for Osipi. From there, you'll connect to Rochester and Portsmouth, before the coastal line to Newburyport, and finally, Arkham. You should be able to afford a rail ticket for at least some of the way. Otherwise, this will be the first of many long bus trips. The driver scratches the match and lights a cigarette. The end flares as he takes a draw. Then he exhales and gestures to the back of the coach. Luggage racks up there. The driver smokes and watches as you drag your cases to the back of the motor coach. The rack is set inconveniently high on the vehicle. Get a grip on the heavier case. The driver continues to enjoy a cigarette, watching with keen interest as you struggle with the cases. Grit your teeth and heave the second one into place. Perhaps the residents of Arkham will have better manners. The driver flicks his cigarette into the gutter and steps into the motor coach. Its engines cough into life. You bored, grateful that you will be the only passenger for the initial part of your trip at least. With mixed emotions, you watch from the window as the tired avenues of your old home slip behind you, receding into the distance. For a few minutes, you can still see the church spire over the brow of a low hill. Then the road dips and it too is gone. Arkham's your new home. You'll travel there and you'll make a new start. The coach putters through the countryside. At first, the interior is stifling, and your stomach lurches with every bend in the road. However, the driver opens his window, and by switching seats, you find a spot where the breeze hits your face. You soon relax into the journey, observing the quaint little hamlets that the coach serves. A heavy-set woman boards at one settlement and gives you a polite nod. She gets off at the next one. The road rises a little, passing cornfields and orchards. The leaves are turning, and the trees are alive with glorious reds and golds. You've just begun to doze when the driver takes a tight bend at speed. A desperate yell awakens you. You feel yourself slide from the seat as the driver spins the wheel and the motor coach plunges off the road. Too late. You reach for the seat in front of you. You fall into the aisle and your ribs crash against the edge of the seat opposite. Breath rushes out of you. The coach stops with a thump. Your driver leaps from his seat into the road. As you sprawl, dizzy in the aisle, you hear a string of incendiary curses. The driver climbs back into the cab and sees you on the floor. He looks concerned and assists you back into your seat. You see what's happened now. A Ports and tractor has stopped in the road, and he had to swerve to avoid the steel obstacle. Sorry, he says. All them fields, and he has to pick the 
road to park. You alright? You don't think anything's broken, but you'll have a colorful bruise for the next few days. He backs the coach up a little and threads it around the tractor, glaring at the farmer. You resume your journey. The driver takes the curves with more caution than before. He glances over his shoulder at you a couple of times. Sorry about before, he says. That feller was dumber than a hog. I'm Silas. What's your name? Hello, Silas. I'm Joanna. The accident was at least as much Silas's fault as the farmer's, but it doesn't seem shrewd to antagonize a man while he's driving you through the middle of nowhere. The coach turns onto a narrower road, which weaves uphill through a woodland. Silas becomes chatty. Going to Arkham, eh? Can't say I ever heard of the place. Went to Boston once? Didn't like it. Too much hustle and bustle. You got family there? Special someone waiting? The afternoon is wearing on. You see no harm in confiding in Silas about your new life. A job, eh? What's your line? Well, Silas, I'm... I'm a doctor of medicine, you see. You mentioned the residency you'll be taking up at St. Mary's Hospital. The institution is well regarded, and you're both thrilled and slightly uneasy at the range of patients and maladies it receives. Still, as an old professor of yours used to say, by practice alone can you become expert. A doctor, eh? Folks will always be needing those. Did you catch a note of distrust in Silas's voice? Or are you just being paranoid? You realize Silas hasn't made a stop since the incident with the tractor. The motor coach winds its way uphill. However, your thoughts are interrupted as the road crests a ridge and you're treated to a magnificent view of the vista below. A creek snakes through the valley, breaking the rich autumn palette of the tree line. In the distance, the white mountains rise into a hazy cloud. There is no settlement, not even a cabin, as far as the eye can see. Birds drift through the treetops and you can just make out what might be two white-tailed deer lingering by the water. Perhaps you're making a mistake by moving to the city. Do you survive on your own in this lush wilderness? The motor coach rattles on through the hills and Silas lapses into silence. The sky darkens behind you, pinks tinting the clouds as the sun descends. Finally, a welcome sight comes into view, a settlement on the crest of a hill. This doesn't look like the pictures you've seen of the Sippy, but perhaps you can persuade Silas to stop while you stretch your legs. Minutes later, a harsh stuttering from the engine interrupts your reverie. Silas frowns and rattles the gear shift. The motor coach falters in its ascent. Silas utters a curse you don't recognize and grinds his teeth, struggling at the wheel. You seem to inch up the hill until you reach the first buildings, low dwellings constructed from a rough red stone. Silas wrestles the coach into a small bay off the road. He scrambles from his seat and makes for the engine compartment. The grinding noises you heard could of course indicate engine trouble, but they also seem consistent with bad gear selection and incorrect declutching. It seems highly unlikely that an experienced coach driver would suddenly get this wrong, even after a long day's drive. If this is a ruse to make you spend your time and money in a local shop, Silas will be sadly disappointed in your purchasing power. Silas opens the engine compartment and sticks his head inside. The hot metal pops and sizzles. He pokes at various components, then withdraws and wipes his brow, smearing it with dark grease. Ain't sure what's wrong. Might be the oil pressure. Might be something knocked off kilter when we took that spill. Can't do much till the engine cools neither. And with the light failing, I reckon we'll be here through the night. He wipes his hands on a rag. The shadows from your surroundings are already long, and the air is chilly. It feels stiff from the journey and a night in the rickety coach sounds unappealing. Silas sees your dismay. This here's Emberhead, miles from any place. Only come through twice a week. The folks here are good people. May Ledbetter keeps a spare room. She'll look after you. Up that alley, turn right, roast house on the left. He scratches his cheek, looks again in the engine compartment, and spits on the ground. Meet me back here at eight in the morning and we'll see how we stand. You confront Silas with your suspicions about the breakdown. His brow darkens and he shows a mouthful of twisted teeth. Ain't that just like you city types, he spits, thinking the worst 
rest of a man after he's gone out of his way to attend to your comfort. He stalks around to the back of the coach and hauls your bags from the rack, dumping them on the ground at your feet. Take them. Otherwise, I guess you'll be accusing me of thievery in the morning, too. He marches off into the darkness, raging. That could have gone better. Drag your cases between the sullen buildings. You feel surprisingly weary, considering you spent all day sitting down. Silas's directions lead you to a modest dwelling with a slate roof. A nameplate reads, Leadbetter, and underneath the sign in neat copper plate reads, Lodging Room. The lane around you is gloomy, but a lamp flickers in the window. A breeze chills your face. You're not about to begin your new life by sleeping in the street. Rap on the weather-beaten door. After a moment, you hear footsteps inside the house. A bolt is drawn back and the wooden door swings open. A figure with loose curls and a rough-looking house dress appears at you. Her gaze takes in your traveling suit and your cases. Her voice has a slight Irish lilt. Hello, should I take it as you're looking for a room for the night? You inquire as to her rates, suppressing a grimace. As far as you've seen, the village does not offer you many alternatives. Oh, you'll find them very reasonable, she says. You look tired. I may. Come inside and we'll talk over a cup of tea. Ledbetter House feels cramped with a low ceiling and simple fittings, but it is well kept and a cheerful fire crackles in the grate. The aroma of the tea is soothing and the cup warms your fingers. Have you come to Emberhead for the festival? asks May. No, I came into town on the bus with Silas, but I think I made him angry about questioning whether or not the bus broke down or he's doing something wrong. May shakes her head and you glimpse a moment of deep-seated anger in her green eyes. He always drives too fast, thinks the road's made for him and him alone. He had a mare some years back and that was a terrible thing. Should have seen the state of the coach. You'd be surprised at the damage done. She sips her tea and gazes past you into the corner of the room. With living here though, we can't afford to antagonize the man. He's about the only link we have to the world at large and he's not a bad soul at heart. I suppose that going the same route for 15 years makes a man careless. You have to forgive him. May goes silent for a long moment, then her eyes flick back to you. But you didn't come here to listen to me blather, and you must be hungry. I can rush you up a bit of stew. How'd you like that? You ask again about her rates, and May names a price so low you accept it without hesitation. The room's small, but comfortable. The stew dark and hearty. After dinner, you have a couple of hours before your usual bedtime. May talks about life in Emberhead. In her letters, my sister always asks if I'm not bored, living in such a small place. She lives in New York. Then she writes about how frightened she is to walk home at night. I ask you. You mention your hopes for a new life in Arkham. May doesn't seem to hear you. It's a small place here, yes, but that means we have real community. Everybody's face is known. Everybody works together. Nobody's excluded, except those who choose to exclude themselves, of course. I couldn't live anywhere else now. As the hours wear on, May's upbeat manner descends into something more reflective. It's not always easy. I'm a widow, you know. We've a little money, and of course, I appreciate the custom of travels like yourself. I know we'll never starve as long as we live here, but I don't see myself marrying again. I know every man in this village. I know them too well, if you see what I mean. Her mouth twists briefly, and then she yawns and pushes through her hair. Oh, time for me to turn in. When would you like your breakfast? As May stands, you hear a clunk behind you. You look over your shoulder, but all you can see is a wooden door, securely closed. May tuts. The young lady of the house, she'll have been listening to us. Ruth, come and greet our guest. There's a short pause, then the door creaks open. Two wide eyes peer at you from the gap, between tousled hair and a rough nightgown. What do you say? The eyes blink. Pleased to meet you. Now get back to bed. The door closes again. My daughter, Ruth. Ten years this summer. She's a delight and a torment all in one. Don't worry, she sleeps in with me. She'll not disturb you. Good night now. You retire to your room. It's a little chilly, but you're too tired to worry about lighting the fire. The sheets are clean and the bed soon warms up. The silence outside is strange after living in a town for so long, but soon drop off. You dream of fire in the grate, coruscating colors shimmering through the dancing tongues of flame. At first they're tiny, almost microscopic, but they grow and grow until 
a kaleidoscope inferno spills from the fireplace, spreading across the floor. Up the sheets! You wake with a start. Daylight glints through the curtains. Get up and examine the grate, blinking the sleep from your eyes. It's quite cold. May seems to have no running water, but has supplied some in a ceramic jug. You freshen up at the washstand and go in. She cooks a hearty breakfast and leaves you in peace to eat. At about 7.30, you're paid up, packed, and ready to go. You bid May goodbye, and she wishes you the best for your new career in Arkham. You're already tired of your heavy bags. Hopefully Silas has repaired the motor coach and you can resume your long journey. Sour pussy might be, but the old driver seemed to understand his vehicle well enough. Pause to check your watch, still 20 minutes early, and round the final corner. Motor coach is gone. Put your bags down and search the area, tracking up and down the slopes and around corners. At the edge of the village, you trace the long road back as it winds across the hills. Eight o'clock comes and goes. There's no coach to be seen. Passing villagers notice your bags. Looking for the bus? I heard him take off at first light. It's due back in three or four days. You need a place to stay. Maid Ledbetter rents a room. The man raises his hat to you and strolls on into the village. You curse Silas under your breath. Perhaps he went for parts, but you wonder if the old goat has stranded you here on purpose. May is doing laundry and looks surprised to see you again. Forgot something. When you explain the situation, she offers to store your bags while you try to arrange alternative transport. You're grateful to relinquish the load. Nobody here is anything like a cat. She strokes her chin and narrows her eyes. Maybe you could find somebody with a horse and a cart for your bags. I could ask around later. Try Mr. Winters at the village hall. He'll know if anyone will. Or ask among the artisans. Their workshops are first left on Silsbury Street. She reaches over and squeezes your wrist. Don't worry. I won't see you sleeping in the street, money or no money. You thank May and turn to face the village. You wander the streets of Emberhead without any particular destination in mind. The village is built on a relatively flat upland with splendid views. To the north, the hazy tips of the White Mountains reach for the heavens. The south, the sparkling waters of Lake Winnipesaukee touch the horizon. The village itself takes less than five minutes to cross from edge to edge. You arrive on the winding road to the west. The only other road leaves to the south, following a lower ridge of land as it turns east. In the southwest of the village, an open grassy space borders a ruined church, its graveyards cresting the cliffs. To the northeast, the three main thoroughfares meet at a raised black metal structure. It looms stark against the blue sky. The general store is on a corner beside the main road, just before it plunges to the south. The shopkeeper is a brisk, immense lady with a starched apron and strong shoulders. She looks hard at your unfamiliar face. Transport? That's a motor coach comes through twice a week. Missed it, hmm? Trucks bring in my supplies every second Tuesday, but he's not due until next week. She shrugs. It seems Emberhead is content to keep its distance from the outside world. Not far from the Ledbetter house, on the north side of Silbury Street, there's an open courtyard. The rhythmic tattoo of a hammer seems to announce your approach. The courtyard is the busiest location you have yet seen in Emberhead. It's bordered by a ring of workshops. Some are brick buildings, some only rough huts. A blacksmith ceases to hammer, thrusting something red and glowing into a bucket of cold water. A weaver looks up from his loom, blinking at you for a moment before returning to his shuttle. A potter, engraver, and carpenter each work in their own space, exchanging friendly banter. You move among the artisans, chatting about their work. Eventually, you bring up the question of export. Some of them send occasional packages with Silas. Some restrict their custom entirely to villagers. You receive no suggestions about alternative transport. One of the workshops is shut up. When you stray close to it, the repartee between the craftspeople becomes awkward, almost forced. Interesting. The village hall backs against a cliff at the east end of Silsbury Street. It's the largest building you've seen so far in Emberhead. It is, however, locked and shuttered. Walk around 
around it, peering through gaps in the shutters. There seems to be one large room, presumably for community meetings, and a smaller annex that serves as an office and archive. One of the windows is bricked up. Back at the main door, you can see no posted opening hours. Mr. Winters doesn't open up mornings this time of year, says a gray-garbed man passing by. Best come back this afternoon. You ask whether the office has a telegraph. Don't know, he shrugs. Who'd we call? You'll have to try again later. You walk up the approach, the most central of the village's major streets. It points directly at the odd metal structure. As you emerge from the shade of the nearby buildings, you're greeted by a magnificent panorama spread from the north to the southeast. The last colors of fall tint the hills in a sleepy gold. The structure, by contrast, is made from uncompromising iron, singed black. It supports an immense curved platform at the level of your head. Further struts snake up to a central point. It looks like they may have been some kind of sculpture at one time, but now are twisted and melted beyond recognition. An older gentleman passes, looking up at you with roomy eyes. Are you here for the festival? He asks. That's the beacon. When they light it night after next, you'll be able to see it ten miles away. He gives a little nod of satisfaction and then moves on, leaning on his walking stick. Now you notice bundles of wood tied and stacked against the buildings nearby. Perhaps this festival would be an interesting diversion, but you really must head to Arkham as soon as possible. As you walk away from the iron structure, you notice something strange about the construction of the village. All the wooden dwellings are concentrated in the west and southwest. To the east and northeast, closest to the beacon, the buildings are formed from dark brick and clay. Does this mean the settlement began at the beacon and spread west? Your morning exertions have left you hungry. Roam the streets of Emberhead, looking for sustenance. There's nothing resembling the busy cafes of your hometown, or anything that might be called a restaurant. It's beginning to look like you'll have to get supplies from the general store when May Ledbetter comes down the street, with a girl trailing in her wake. This must be Ruth. As she notices you, she races past her mother and approaches you with a smile. This is a different Ruth from the shy creature of last night. As she reaches you, she stops and stretches her arm up in celebration. She looks up into your eyes. Abruptly, the smile drops from her face and she looks several years older. Get out before the festival! She hisses. Get out! She blinks hard, then scuttles back toward her mother. May approaches, wrapping an arm around her daughter's shoulder. She smiles. How are you getting on? Have you found transport? S Startled, you explain the frustrations of the situation. Oh, I'd try Mr. Winters in the village hall. He's always in of the afternoon. You'll be hungry by now. Help yourself to any food in the house. The door's not locked. Glance at Ruth where she's squirreled herself behind her mother's leg. Her eyes implore you to silence. Take your leave of the Ledbetters and head toward their house. The door opens easily. In the low kitchen, you make a meal from stodgy bread and leftover stew. Little window offers a view to the mountains. If you learned one thing this morning, it's that Emberhead streets hold little to occupy the visitors from out of town. But there's still about five hours of daylight remaining. You could take some provisions and the bare essentials from your luggage and set out in the hope of reaching another settlement before dark. Or you could ask advice from this Mr. Winters. The village hall overlooks the lower north ridge of the village. You walk along Silsbury Street to find it conscious of the oppressive black metal structure framed at the end of the road. The shutters of the hall are open and some windows are left ajar. There is no knocker, but a little bell over the entrance tinkles as you push the front door. Inside, a sturdy door to your right is marked private. To your left, an opening leads through to a bright room. Take a few steps inside. Benches line the walls and there are two notice boards mounted between the windows. The floorboards creak beneath you as you cross the room. You feel a slight spring in your step. Perhaps this room is used as a gymnasium for the village children. 
children. One notice board appears to be for the adults of the community, and one for the children. The former looks neglected, featuring handwritten advertisements for household items, and a yellowed note about telegraph pricing? There's nothing about the festival. Children's notice board has a schedule for weekly creche services, and a number of paintings obviously done by the children themselves. Most are incoherent, though colorful. As best you can tell, they depict fireworks, or perhaps the tale of Joseph from the book of Genesis. One has lost a pin and hangs upside down. It shows a giant bird attacking Emberhead. Or it might simply be that the artist has not yet mastered the subtle subtleties of scale. As the afternoon sun hits the floor, you notice something curious. The boards under the windows are newer than the boards in the center of the floor. The frames also show signs of having been replaced in the recent past. Perhaps rain leaked in and rotted the wood? The door scrapes behind you. A middle-aged, bespeckled gentleman appears in the doorway. May I help you? You explain your visiting on May Ledbetter's recommendation. Ah, oh, well, I'm Clyde Winters. I'm not sure I can help you, but would you care for some coffee? I'm partial to a cup in the afternoon. He gestures to the open door behind him. This seems like a worthwhile opportunity. You are a little thirsty. You step through the door marked private. The other side of the village hall is in a marked contrast to the public space. The room is compact, lined with shelves of books and file alcoves. One corner is reserved for a tiny pantry, what is presumably a water closet. You study Mr. Winters as he fills the percolator. Although thin on top, his hair is oiled and swept back. His suit is a somber affair, well tailored even, if the cut is a little old-fashioned. A lesser man working alone might have loosened his bow tie for comfort. On the desk against the opposite wall, you notice what looks like a telegraph set. Pop begins to gurgle as you exchange pleasantries with Winters. Living here, it's a trade-off like so much in life. He looks past you at the high shelf. I could wish for access to a proper library, of course, but I know myself well enough. I'm strictly a dabbler, and in the cities? His face wrinkles in distaste. Too many people. Everybody rushing and shouting. We have a special place here in Eberhead, and someone must accept responsibility for keeping it so. That was my father before me, and now the duty falls to me. He lifts his chin and straightens up. This evening, as the sun sets, look out at the landscape around the village. We have peace up here, halfway to the stars. Are we not privileged? Is this not worth the hardships we must accept? He looks at you speculatively. This seems a good time to ask about the telegraph. The telegraph? Hmm. Much as we value our isolation, we do need the link sometimes. You were hoping to send a message. Well, I must apologize. This line's been down for two weeks. I reported the fault, but of course, they're not so speedy when the problem lies in a rural area. I'm expecting a repair the day after next. I do appreciate how frustrating this must be. The coach is due in, what, three days? But I think he's going west. Perhaps you might engage a wagon. One of the farmers might. You explain that you've asked a few of the residents already, but to no avail. Tell you what... Winters pours you a steaming cup of coffee. Dark liquid smells rich and strong. When the repair crew arrive, I'll ask them to take you back with them. How'd that be? They might want a dollar or two to grease the wheels. Day after tomorrow? It's less than ideal, but it's the first real opportunity you've had. You make a small but flattering remark about a couple of the volumes on the shelves. Winters blushes with pleasure. Well, of course, they're not my personal collection. They belong to the village, he says. But I did select most of the recent items. This is the community's library, you see. I put up the private sign to stop people just wandering in from meetings in the other room. But this is really a public space. You scan the shelves. There's a sparse but respectable collection on mathematics and the sciences, passable sections on history and arts, and a shelf of literature. These a few lowbrow 
novels tucked away in a corner, with tatty copies of Bizarre Tales magazine. Quality does not always equate to popularity, I'm afraid. Winters gives you an apologetic smile. Winters is happy for you to spend the rest of the afternoon in the study and offers you an upright but comfortable chair. You have enough time to pursue one line of research in depth. What will we choose? You're not surprised to find there's no published work on Emberhead's festival. Winters pokes around and finds a cased monograph, handwritten on yellowing paper, by a Dr. Anilowski. An acquaintance of my father's, I believe, Winters says. The manuscript is somewhat difficult to read, and you make slow progress. Anilowski speculates the festival has its origins in pagan rites brought over by Celtic settlers, which celebrate the ancient festivals of Belten, Semain, Imbolc, and Gnashta. There's some discussion of the struggle between the seasons and a couple of oblique references to the alignment Emberhead. Anilowski suggests that the meaning of the festival slowly changed around the turn of the century. The monograph terminates mid-sentence at the end of page 28, just as it begins to discuss the modern practices. You ask Winters if he has the remaining pages. No, I'm afraid those have been misplaced, he says. Perhaps they're still in the library somewhere, but... He shrugs. I must make the time for a thorough stock take. The afternoon wears on. You've not quite finished your reading when Winters glances out the window and stands up. He clears his throat. I'm happy to leave you in charge for a half hour or so, he smiles. Please don't issue any books without a valid library card. You thank Winters for his trust and continue with your reading for a time. As the light dims, you find yourself yawning in the closeness of the room. Perhaps it's time for a change of material. As you scan the shelves, you try to move aside one of the three volumes of Wapole's A Comprehensive Grammar of the Andean Peoples. It will not shift, and upon further inspection you find the three volumes are actually glued together and attached to the wall. Is this some kind of unobtrusive way to reinforce the shelves? You hear footsteps in the hall, and on instincts, move away from this curious discovery. The door opens and Winters re-enters the library. He wears a small, satisfied smile. His gaze shifts to you where you stand at the shelves. Exhausted our stock already? Of course we accept donations, he chuckles. I'm afraid it's closing time. You leave the building with Winters and wait as he locks up. Thank him for the coffee and access to the library. He strolls away down Silsbury Street. As the light fades, you return to the Ledbetter house and eat a light supper. May's unusually taciturn. Ruth's eyes flick to yours several times during the meal. There is an urgency there that you can't quite interpret. Afterwards, May ushers the girl into her room. You've already been in Emberhead for barely one day, and you already feel confined by it, both geographically socially. Evening seems to offer little. In time, May returns to the kitchen and busies herself clearing up. To speak to Ruth, you'll need to get May to leave for a short while. You help with the dishes and try to think of some ruse. In time, an idea comes to you. Ask about Silas and his friends in the village. May narrows her eyes. He knows Troy on the other side of town, she says. Not sure I'd call them friends, more like an old feuding couple, but he probably spent last night at Troy's place. You ask May if she could visit Troy and ask if Silas meant any plans to return. May looks dubious. Right now, she asks. Well, I suppose it'll only take a few minutes. May fetches a coat and heads out into the night. Give her time to get clear, then rap on the bedroom door. Nothing comes but silence. Then feet pat across the floor, and the door opens a few inches. Ruth's eyes stare through the gap, glancing from left to right. You explain her mother has left the house and ask what's been bothering her. Those eyes flick up to stare at you. It's tomorrow, she whispers. Same as every year. They took my da. They'll take you if you let them. The conviction in her eyes is chilling. Press her. Who is she talking about? All of them. Everyone. Been watching you since you got here. You're marked. Her voice is hollow. One year, when I'm older, they'll take me. You hear footsteps approach 
approaching from outside. Ruth's eyes flash and the bedroom door slams. Turn back to drying the dishes. May enters and removes her coat. That man's a waste of time, she hisses and heads through to the bedroom. The familiar surroundings of your guest room are becoming constrictive. The neat bed, small wardrobe, and dressing mirror have the feel of a prison cell about them. What are you still doing here in Emberhead? Life is elsewhere. Lie on the bed and stare at a small crack in the ceiling. Turn over the day's events, thinking through the little details you spotted. You're certainly weary from the elevation and the fresh air. Do you still feel safe here? Sleep presses down on you. Blink it back and sit up, trying to think through your situation. Everything in Emberhead seems to be working to stop you leaving. Perhaps the answer is to strike out at first light, to walk as far and as fast as you can. You can always return for your possessions, and if you lose them, nothing so precious that it could not be replaced. A tiny creak draws your attention to the other side of the room. Slowly, almost silently, doorknob is turning. You slide onto the bed and lie on your side, eyes closed. The hinges creak as the door opens. There's a long pause. A footfall sounds inside the room, then another. The steps are careful and feminine. Give it a moment, then open one eye, a crack. May crouches with her back to you. She's fiddling with something in the fireplace. After another few moments, May glances round at you, then you hear the soft scratch of a match being lit. She applies it to something in the grate and tiptoes from the room. Once you hear her bedroom door creep to the grate, a small mound of black powder, no bigger than a thimble, is burning there. It gives off heady fumes. You stare out the window and watch as the sun reaches the horizon, bathing the village in a sickly orange. It's been a long night and you feel stiff and irritable. Rub your eyes. A few minutes later, you hear May bustling in the kitchen. Then the front door opens and closes. The Ledbetter kitchen is empty, although bread and eggs have been laid out for your breakfast. There's a note from May explaining she's taken Ruth out for a few hours. Make a quiet circuit of the village, pausing in unobtrusive places to watch the villagers. It's rather busy for this time in the morning. Yawning locals stream back and forward along the roads, carrying bundles of split logs to the site of what you've heard referred to as the beacon. You see two figures already up in its superstructure arranging the wood. Festival bonfire will be most impressive, but do you intend to stay to see it? suspect by now that something's amiss here. Despite her hospitality, do not trust May Ledbetter. You return to her house quite openly. Where else would you go? Inside the dwelling is still empty. Rap on the bedroom door and wait. Silence. Ease it open. The Ledbetter bedroom is in marked contrast to your own. Neat space. Dirty clothes are piled about the floor. On a rough quilt lie school books and cheap novels. Notice a raggedy old doll discarded down the side of the bed. You notice scrapes on the floorboards corresponding to the legs of the bed. With effort, you slide the bed away. There's a rug spread beneath it, and beneath the rug, a trap door. Ease it open. The dark space beneath is some kind of cellar. The daylight barely offers enough illumination to see, but a hot lantern during daytime would be very suspicious. You squeeze beneath the floor and glance around. Your first impression is that May keeps her junk here, where there are many boxes of different sizes piled in untidy heaps. It takes a few seconds before you realize that they are all traveling trunks, or suitcases. There's about 20 of them. This implication hits you hard. Maintain enough control to check the luggage tags. Count eight or nine different names before you stop. Scrambling back up to the bedroom, close the trap door with trembling fingers, returning the bed to its place. You feel a deepening unease about Emberhead and this day in particular. Keeping away from the streets, you skirt the northern cliffs and approach the village hall from the rear. It's close to the beacon and you'll not be able to use the door unobserved. Check the windows. One on the east side facing the beacon is bricked up. A shutter is loose on the westernmost window and you're able to ease it open and slide inside, closing the shutter behind you. Drop into the village meeting room and pad through, passing through the dim shafts of light and listening to the excited chatter 
of the locals from outside. Door opposite reads, private. Hearing nothing from the other side, turn the handle. The room is lined with books. In the corner is a small water closet in a pantry. A quick survey of the rest of the room reveals little, so you turn to the bookcase. The dim light makes it difficult to read the spines. Is there anything useful here? You're looking along the spines when you notice how close the bookcase is to the window on the north wall. From outside, there's a solid three or four feet between the edge of the window and the wall. The bookcase covers the wall with the bricked-up window. Further examination reveals an ingenious arrangement of slipcases physically attached to the shelves. When you pull to the left, the entire section of bookcase swings out. The the matter of activity around the beacon seems to be building. You flinch at every conversation that gets too close to the building's door. You squint into the darkness behind the bookcase. It's a small alcove, big enough for one person. It has a hidden shelf on either side. You can't make out any titles in this light. You slip from the building, clutching some of the more portable volumes. In the shadows behind the artisan's courtyard, you examine them. To your disappointment, two or three are in a script unknown to you. Another appears to be in Egyptian symbols. There is a spidery, handwritten copy of something named Emerald Tablet. Perhaps most intriguing is a small book of strange poetry bound in black, published in Boston in 1919. The cover reads, As a Thought and Others, by Edward Derby. You'll have to hide the larger volumes, but you can pocket the Derby book. You approach around the back of the building, in Emberhead's northwestern corner. By this time in the morning, you would expect activity in the artisan's courtyard, but the benches and anvils sit deserted. Your footsteps echo off the surrounding walls. One of the workshops is shut up and padlocked. Peeked through the joints, but you can see nothing in Inside. You examine the padlock. It's old and not particularly secure. There are plenty of metal shavings around that could work as improvised picks. But can you really pick a lock? You step back from the door and regard it in frustration. A crunching noise distracts you, and a human shadow falls on a nearby wall. Someone's approaching. Melt away in the other direction. You're contemplating your next move when you see one villager, a bald man with a damaged ear, watching you intently. Some instinct makes you walk in the other direction. Then you see the others ahead, and to your sides, a teenager, an evil-eyed matron, a man hefting a club. They're not staring as obviously as the first, but they keep you under watch. Are they closing in? Can't hope to overcome four of them at once. Dart down an alley, then turn and head in a completely different direction. Running feet sound behind you. For the first time, you feel Emberhead's cramped, chaotic streets work in your favor. Try to circle around towards the southern road. You turn a corner and walk straight into the formidable woman with the malevolent stare. She grabs your shoulders and bears down on you. As you struggle, the man with the club runs up with the teenager were quickly overcome. Fading light from a narrow window tells you afternoon is giving way to evening. Your hands are shackled behind your back, so you cannot even lie down on the rough bed. A woman you've not seen before comes in. Her face is wrinkled and her eyes dull. They do not meet yours, but she puts a cup to your lips. You turn your face away, and when she tries again, you dash the cup from her hands with the side of your head. The clear liquid spills across the floor. A woman gives a half shrug and turns to leave the room. You shout after her, but she gives you no reaction. You soon become thirsty. As the light fades, outside, your little prison becomes dark. You can hear much activity around the building. Occasionally, an orange glow passes the window. The only comfortable position in the shackles seems to be to sit against the end of the bed, with your arms hanging behind you. You need to concentrate and come up with a plan. There's clearly no escape from your bonds. You do not know exactly what your captors want from you, but you cannot ignore the fact that they've spent the entire day constructing a massive bonfire. The door scrapes, wrenching you back into the moment. Orange light spills into the house from blazing torches held at the threshold. Two large villagers step in and grab you. At least you assume they're villagers. They wear heavy black cloaks, and their faces and hands are painted entirely black, save only for a red triangle centered on their left eye. You try to drag your legs, but they reach under your arms and lift you bodily from the bed. Outside, it seems, the whole village is congregated to see you. Every single one 
has a blackened face with the red triangle motif. Torches sputter and spill fire. You struggle, but you can see physical resistance is hopeless. You are marched to the central street and turned to face the beacon. The procession down the approach is slow and formal, save when you sense weakness and yank at your captors. A chill touches you when you see three human shapes carried ahead of you, draped in red cloth. The beacon looms larger and larger, its dreadful silhouette a black triangle pointing to the stars. A low drone begins among the cloaked figures. Unbidden, the word mourners comes to mind. Smoke from their torches makes you cough, feel heat on your face. As you reach the cleared area around the beacon, three dancers break from the pack, young girls swinging balls of fire in spectacular arcs, drawing circles in the night air. One by one, they draw close to you and touch your forehead with sooty fingers. Each kisses you three times on the left cheek, right cheek, then forehead. Then they whisper in your ear. The smell of kerosene fills your nostrils. Through your sacrifice, the village will be reborn, says the first dancer. You pass from earth to air for all our sakes, says the second. I've weakened the chains, said the third. Don't try to escape until the flames are high enough to hide you. You stare at the third dancer. In that inky visage, you clearly discern the frightened features of Ruth Ledbetter. Their dance weaves off and disappears behind the building. As you arrive beneath the beacon, ten villagers close in on you. Working with surprising coordination, they immobilize you and lift you up the blackened iron stairs to the raised platform. Can't help but shiver at the sight of the central framework, twisted from past blazes, and what you can now clearly see to be fastening points for chain. None of the eyes meet yours as they lash you to the metal. The villagers sing now, something rhythmic and ancient, carved from odd syllables. A second group ascend to the beacon, carrying the three red-draped bodies. With reverence, they arrange their burdens in a triangle around your feet. Then they withdraw, leaving you alone with the dead, shin-deep in a sea of kindling. It seems the entire village is gathered around the beacon to watch you burn. Behind the face paint you recognize may lead better, and yes, that is Silas, the coach driver, standing at her side. The audacity and scale of the deception staggers you. A man steps up on the dais, raises his hands with quiet authority. The frame of his spectacles obscures the red triangle on his face. So we draw here together again on this night, as we do each year, and we give thanks to the one who will preserve the village against the fire of the void, who will be taken by the ones from above in our stead. Your death will bring life to our streets and bounty to our fields. It will safeguard our children and our elders alike for another year. We salute you. He bows his head. All around the beacon, bearers step forward and lift their torches to the edge of the race platform. A ring of tiny flames flicker up around the perimeter. As they wink, the singing of the villagers drops into an unearthly rhythm. The flames snake across the kindling, catching and rising. Smoke rises and it becomes difficult to see the villagers. The three bodies surrounding you catch fire, blazing with sooty red flames. You begin to cough as the smoke enters your lungs and fight down the urge to panic. Flames lick at your legs. Your eyes water. You're shrouded in smoke. It might be your imagination, but you think you can feel a slight give in the chains. Throw yourself against them, giving no thought to how they bite into your wrists. Desperation lends you strength and you yank at what you guess to be the weak point in the chain. It breaks. Throw the chain off, stumbling across one of the red shrouded corpses, heading away from the watching villagers. You cough. Your hair and eyebrows smolder. You leap from the conflagration on the far side of the beacon. Your heart lurches momentarily at the sight of the sheer drop beneath you, but you land a few inches short of the edge. Roll to extinguish your burning clothes. Your lungs feel singed. Everything hurts. The chant of the villagers gathers in intensity. Peer around the beacon. Don't seem to have noticed your absence amidst the billowing smoke. Most of them are staring into the sky. You crawl as rapidly as you can for the cover of the nearest building. With the villagers assembled at the beacon, the streets are empty, and you're able to pad away from the blaze. You must get out of town before they finish. Chanting seems to accelerate as you round the corner of the southern road. Here, parked against the side of the general store, you have your first piece of luck since reaching Emberhead. A bicycle. You learn to ride one of these in 
improvidence. You settle into the saddle. Your burned flesh protests at the contact. It takes a moment to recapture the skill of riding the bicycle, but after the first turn to the east, there's a long downhill out of Emberhead. You hear screams and crackles above you, but concentrate on balancing and working the pedals in your weakened state. You've had too many hopes dashed in this abomination of a village. Keep your head down and ride away. Twenty minutes later, with no signs of pursuit, you stop for a breather at the top of a hill. You can see Emberhead rise in the distance. The entire village appears to be ablaze. The dark column of smoke above it will be visible for many miles, but if the village is as isolated as it seems, help is unlikely to arrive in time. Watch the place burn for five minutes, then you mount the bicycle again and ride towards civilization and dawn. After surviving the events in Emberhead, take some time during the next full week to absorb Derby's poetry. His verses tell of something at the center of existence, an oscillating consuming mass which rips apart the very fabric of the universe. Its emissary, sometimes named the Faceless One, sometimes the Crawling Chaos, brings terrible derangement to all it touches. The words have a certain quality, not of vivid imagination, but of helpless revelation. As you spend time with the volume, you notice insidious connections between the poems, which begin to disturb you. You will never again rest quite so easily. The End Thank you for joining us for Uncanny Adventures podcast. Come back next time to continue our adventures.